Twitter. Okay, so I do have a couple things to talk about as we begin. The first one is this. Um, I don't know if you guys know what the Dobbs decision is. It's uh, probably going to come down this week. It's the whole thing, Supreme Court, uh, Roe versus Wade, that whole thing. And however you feel on either side of this decision, what has come out is there are groups who have decided that when this comes down, that they are going to attack different pregnancy centers around the country. And so CareNet in town would appreciate your prayers because they are a, a, a organization that helps women in crisis. Uh, you can, they, they do sonograms, they help women with clothes, they do counseling, There's all, they do ESL classes, all kinds of things. And so if you guys could keep them in your prayers this week, especially if that decision gets dropped this week, they would covet those prayers. Uh, second thing is if you pulled in, you look over here, we have a container that's out here in the middle of the dirt on the side. Uh, that is with a, a program that we're going to partner with about getting relief to U Ukraine. You're going to get some more information as we kind of move towards that, but we're going to fill that thing with food and they are going to ship that thing off over to Ukraine to help the people that are there. You're going to get more information again as Go there. Just keep them back in your minds. Uh, Non-perishable goods. I'll probably put in the email update this week to the stuff that you can bring. We'll give you drop-off time so you can understand how that's going. Trying to get you guys moving forward. Pray. Karenet. Welcome to Element if you're new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. They are half sheets. And what you'll get is the verses we're covering. Uh, you'll get a place for notes. Underneath that, you get a place to write a question. You might have a question after today. On the back side, what you're going to get is a half sheet recap. And then underneath that, some questions you can talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about through what we talk about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And last week, you guys got Ben who talk much slower than me. Gear back up. Here, here we go. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would teach us what it means to be a people who understand what we are looking at when we talk about the ideas of creation that we would trust you to be the God who is over all and has spoken truth to us, and that we would then live in that truth that you have revealed. Teach us to be those who trust you and have that trust then go into how we live our lives in this world around us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series called Never Read a Bible Verse. That doesn't mean we don't want you to read a Bible verse. It means that we want you to read the Bible in context. And some of these weeks we're going to be covering specific verses, and some weeks we're going to be covering concepts. Today we are going to cover a concept. And you may not feel like you've been to church and went through a sermon, because I'm really just going to teach you a lot of stuff and a lot of different ideas today. And I hope it connects and makes sense and helps you, because put your thinking caps on because we're going to walk through the ideas of creation. Now creation, if you don't know, it's a pretty big deal. 
It's like, why are we here? Well, creation kind of tells us that. And I have had people leave Element because I didn't wholeheartedly jump into where they were on their ideas of creation. It's not that I disagreed. I just wasn't as vehement about their arguments as, as they were. And today, I don't want you to feel like you have to do that. If you have any questions by the end, feel free to write them down. Uh, I was going to do a Q&A session after the 1045 service today, but hey, dodgeball took precedence. <laughs> But I will do that next week. And if you have questions this week, write those down, bring them next week, or just drop them in the offering box or give them to Sarah. We want to make sure we answer the questions that may come up from this. I have talked to adults who think that they cannot trust the Bible or be Christians because they cannot reconcile in their mind a six-day creation account with science. And what I tell them is how you believe God did creation should not stop you from believing what God did in our restoration in Christ, because in the end, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. I have had people want to come and say, you have to believe in a literal six-day creation account and Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, or you cannot be saved. And I said, did Jesus say is they that? Did Jesus say, you must believe in my sacrifice for you and a six-day creation account? And they say, well, no, I guess he didn't say that. And I said, then neither should we. I mean, not that it's not important, but we should be a people who are about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation and redemption start and end with the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for us. And so we want to talk about creation because it's important, but we want to come back to the ideas that it is, in the end, all about Jesus. If you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 1, usually pretty easy to find. That is the first book of the Bible. The creation narrative, I'm going to give you kind of four points. They're not in your notes, but I think I can break this out in four different ways to help you remember it today. So the first one is this, God made everything. Let's pray. And you know, you get a whole message still. Okay. (laughs) The creation narrative really can be summed up with those words. God made everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, it is a poem. It's a song. It's got a lyrical movement to it. In the beginning, God. That is actually three words in Hebrew. It's not five like it is in English. And it is beginning. Beginning is this word, bereshit or reshith. You got to say it correctly or you might get in trouble. But that's where the word Genesis comes from. It could be translated also as when God began to create. In the Hebrew, the entire thought isn't really finished until the third verse when God brings his light into the creation. And so verses one through three describe the state of things at the time when God first speaks. And what's interesting is how the scriptures come together. That's kind of us and our lives until God speaks into our lives. Galatians 4.19, it says, until Christ is formed in you. Second Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations in Christ. It's like we are formless until God speaks his life and light into our lives. And then you have the second word, creates. This is the word bara. That's how a white boy says it. It's like bara, but that's the word. Only God is described with that word. That is exclusive to divine creativity. And the wording signifies from the Bible's perspective that this creation, all that is going to follow in the narrative from now on depends solely on God for its coming into existence. It is beyond human capacity to reproduce. You ever hear this old question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You probably know. Okay, well, when I was a kid, people asked that question. The chicken or the egg? Like, did God create eggs or did God create chickens? God made chickens. 
God made chickens. He created a man and a woman, not babies. He created man and a woman as adults. The, this word bara, it doesn't refer to the things it was created from. It refers to the completed object. And so God creates things in maturity. The chicken comes first to the completed product. So the first word is that word bershit. The second word is bara. And the author puts those two words together to make a solemn declaration for the rest of the narrative. And then it gets to God. God. I like to say big G on the eye chart, but actually this is the word Elohim, so it's like big E on the eye chart. That works even better with the whole example. Genesis never exhibits any interest in the questions of God's origins. It is God just is. His existence prior to all of creation doesn't require discussion. It's an assertion. There is no definition of God or any mystical speculation about his nature. It starts, God just is, bam! And that's why you're here, because God decided to make a creation. That's how it starts. And God's nature will find its expression, not in all, all of our arguments and philosophical abstractions. He will be known by what he does in the book by how he creates, by how he loves his creation, by how he interacts with us. Now, God not explaining himself in a way that we all want gives people a lot of pause because we think God should explain it to me the way that I want, the, the explanations how I want to hear it, how I want him to do it. That's what I want God to do. And God laughs at us for this. Actually, the Bible tells us this. God's like, <laughs> yeah, you would never get it anyway. Let me see if I can help explain this just a little bit. I just finished this really good book that you shouldn't read because you hate it, uh, but it's called The History of Western Philosophy. It's by a guy named John Frame. It's like a thousand pages. It's really dense, but it is excellent. It's so good if you can get through it. It just Anyway, uh, philosophically and scientifically, there is these things called cause and effect. Cause and effect. I, in my old backyard, I had this dog pen. And I went in there and I, and I dug it out. I put concrete in and poles and decomposed granite and I ran a water line out there. And if you went and looked at that dog pen, you would say, hey, it's got a design. There's a designer. It may not have been an intelligent design, but, the, but there was a design that was there. You'd be like, oh, cause and effect, cause and effect. Every effect has a cause. According to philosophic and scientific theory, something coming from nothing is impossible. Uh, David Hume, who is a philosopher and atheist who is much quoted, says that right there causes the, the greatest questions for atheists. Like, they can't get around that. Anything that begins to exist or comes into being has to have a cause. So philosophically, it looks like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe and mankind began to exist. Therefore, the universe and mankind has a cause. That's how that gets uh, put out. Now, Genesis is not scientific treaty. It was written from, from a Hebrew perspective. And so it starts out with this simple fact that in the beginning, God creates. So people say, all right, great. What caused God? If every you know, effect has a cause, well, then what caused God? The answer to that is nothing because only what begins to exist has a cause. God never began to exist. He always was. When we see in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, that would also include our ideas of time. And so when we say, oh, yeah, but we're God. Well, before time, God made time. I know it's like, I, you're, you're blowing my mind, Ricky Bobby. Okay. Uh, we even use words like eternal or infinite to refer to God. And yet those words are words that are bound by time. God created this thing that we call time. What's it like beyond time? I don't know. 
You don't know because in the beginning, God made everything we know and everything we don't know, everything we understand and everything we don't understand. Now, as American culture, we think that in the beginning, it has to have a date. And it probably does. But we think if we could figure out that date, we can make ourselves feel better about our faith and who God is. And on the other extreme, some people want that date to try and disprove God. But God hasn't given anyone that option. He simply states it as a fact. I did it. You gotta get over it. You're gonna have to trust me in this because you're never gonna understand it all anyway, even if I tried to explain it to you. In our Never Read a Bible Verse narrative, I told you the second week that we must understand that the Bible was not written directly to us, but it was written for us. There are all kinds of things that we learn in that creation narrative, but this was written to a particular people who lived in a particular place and space and time. The Hebrew people who had left slavery, they're traveling around in this wilderness. They had lived lives in Egypt, and I'm sure they've heard the stories of God's creation, but for 400 years, they're indoctrinated into a culture that have Sumerian and Mesopotamian and Egyptian gods, and all they're hearing are all of these stories. And it probably starts to skew them a little bit, just like us. You know, America has been a country a little over a couple hundred years. And how skewed are we today by the culture that we live in? I'm not skewed at all. It just shows me how skewed you are. We all get a little bit skewed. So they're traveling through this desert wilderness and they have all these stories that are there. And so God in Genesis steps in and reminds them who he is. Many times in the midst of a narrative they've been indoctrinated into. Now hear me in this. The Israelites did not live in a world that seeks scientific truth the same way that we do today. They lived in a culture that was surrounded by stories. And all these stories of all these angry gods who were just capricious and wanted to take out one another. They may love you one day and try and kill you the next. They didn't know what to do. They would crush you or provide for you. And if you try to read a Genesis narrative apart from understanding the Israelites, you're not going to understand it because they have to be in the midst of how you think about it. When the Israelites hear, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, they're not thinking Milky Way and Hubble telescopes and solar systems. What they see is the sky during the day and the stars at night. And if an, an Israelite saw an image of the earth like this one, that we have in our textbooks that we see all the time, they would have no idea what they're looking at. As a matter of fact, people before 1946 when we got the image, would have no idea really what they were looking at. For three to 4,000 years ago, their understandings of the words heaven and earth were particular to a culture and a world. Heavens can be translated as sky. Earth can be translated as land. And for them, that's what they see, the sky and the land. For us, we understand that this is the entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, all that they can see, all that we can see. But again, for 400 years, they were in slavery. And so they keep hearing these stories of these Egyptian gods and their creation accounts. The, the big ones are the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish. And these gods, when they create things, it's all out of chaos and disorder. Now, this does not mean, as some skeptics want to try and say today, that Moses borrowed or copied these other stories. But God does try and use what they are familiar with to explain himself to them. He is telling them, I alone created everything that you see. There is one God and it is me and I am not capricious and I love you and designed you to be in a relationship with me. Now, there are a few Egyptian stories and some of those basic storylines might line up a bit with the scriptures, but not exactly. Uh, there is the watery abyss and out of this abyss, these fighting gods rise and everyone's afraid of the watery abyss, the chaos monsters that are in the middle of it. And this is interesting because when God creates, what does he do? 
His spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. They are calm before him. Now in Egypt, the offspring of the gods was Geb, who was the earth, and Nut, who was the sky. Here's a picture that we found archaeologically at this point. And in this picture, what you do is have Shu in the middle, and Shu is holding up Nut in the sky and Geb below. And when you read the creation accounts, as I said, there's a couple things that kind of line up, which would make sense if we all started in the same place. They have a creation narrative. They have a flood narrative. But the Bible's aim in retelling this creation narrative is correcting the understanding of his people. So they know that there is one true God, and this one true God is good. He retells the story to make these distinctions from these other stories that are false. Again, all these other stories portray the gods as violent deities. They fight each other. They don't even care if human beings are around or not. But in Genesis, it comes in and it tells you that God is entirely unlike all those made-up gods that we put together in our own minds. First off, there is one single God who made everything as he has made relational promises to be with a people. Secondly, the God in the book of Genesis narrative, it doesn't, he doesn't need anybody's help in creation. Nothing has to help him. Creation is not a fight for him to get built. He is all-powerful, and he does it with simply his words. Third, God creates mankind in his image, meaning we have dignity and value and worth. No other narrative shows a God who treated humans with love and care. God doesn't need us to provide for him. God provides for us. And fourth, the God of all creation entrusts his image bearers with the task of caring for creation rather than creating them to serve all of his whims. In the beginning, God made everything. Second thing, Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the second thing. You were made in God's image for a purpose. Now that word image is this word called selim. And that word is actually borrowed from these other cultures. You might think, well, why would the Hebrews borrow a word? Really important. Glad you asked. And I talked about this before. Now, the king of a country or the Pharaoh was the only one to ever be thought to be made in the image of the God or the gods who created the king. Only that person. And so it's a dividing line between the king and the rest of the culture, between the king and the rest of the people. Peasants and slaves were not thought to be made in the image of the God or the gods. And as Israelites, what are they now? Slaves. They are are former slaves. They're wandering around the wilderness. So why were they made? Who were they made for? What's their purpose? And this is why that word selim is so important because that word selim can mean images or idols. And all these religions would have their images and idols and the idols were controlled by the priests who were then controlled by the king and everybody only had access to God or the heavens through the king. And yet in Genesis, it tells you that is a lie. That is a lie because God says, you are my image bearers to the world. That's why I made you. Why were you created? To image me. And that statement by the writer of Genesis is one of the single most world-changing statements about human dignity, equality, and worth ever recorded. Today, people still live their lives betting the entirety of themselves on that equality. And the sad thing is a lot of people today push for equality, but they have nothing behind it. It's like, I just feel like we should be. But why? Why? There is no reason for it unless God created you and God said, you are my image bearers to the world. God is the one who gives us our equality. That's why we rest on his creation of who we are. And imagine what it did to peasants and slaves to be told that not just the king, 
but you too were made in the image of the one great God. Male and female, slaves and peasants made in God's image. And then God calls his people to be a community where everybody treats everyone else like they were made in the image of God. That really becomes the point of Genesis chapter 1. Now, what you have to do is start to think about this. Put yourself in the place of an ancient Israelite, okay? You're walking through the desert. You're getting this narrative. It's given to you. Are you asking questions about carbon dating? Or are you asking questions about the uh, dinosaur fossils? Or how did Noah get all those animals on the ark? Uh, Microevolution versus macroevolution? No. You want to know if the God who created the heavens and the earth actually cares about you. Does he care about you? He is leading you through a desert wilderness. Is he strong enough and powerful enough? He is displaying miracle after miracle. He just defeated all the Egyptians and all of their gods to prove that they are nothing because he is the God who rules over everything. And he is leading you out miracle after miracle, defining who he truly is, redeeming you. Can that God be trusted? And the answer is yes. Yes! Whew. All right. Now, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. That's another chapter over to the right. All right. Uh, the Israelites at this time had a three-tiered view of creation. And God will even address this in the Ten Commandments. Like, Ten Commandments, right? Number one is, you know, God's God, you're not. And so often we forget that. It's so simple. And yet we forget that all the time. Uh, commandment number two, Exodus 20, verse four says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. These are the realms that they understood. And so God reveals himself in this way. Why don't you make an image of anything? Because you are meant to be my image bearers to the world. He meets them where they are because he cares about them. And it may seem awkward or confusing sometimes to you and me. When God shows up, he doesn't try and correct any scientific inaccuracies that they might have about the earth or what they viewed as a solid dome of a sky. God was using what was familiar to communicate to them himself in a way that they could be in a relationship with him. It wasn't, here's the science textbooks, and these are atoms and mosons and gluons and leptons, and this is how the, you know, all these things work around. And now we can have a relationship because you understand some things, but not everything because you're still going to be clueless and all these other areas. But that's not what he does. He shows up and reveals himself in a way they can understand. Why? Because more important than understanding how the heavens work is the restored relationship that God wants to have with his image bearers. That's why. Uh, Galileo once said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And so often we want to teach us how the heavens go. And there are people today who don't understand the Bible, who will mock Christians for believing the Bible. John Stewart says this, Yes, reason has been part of, a, of organized religion ever since two nudists took dietary advice from a talking snake. He says it sarcastically. Uh, Richard Dawkins says, You cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. Like, why not? I mean, I get why they say that if they come at the Bible with their own preconceived ideas. But if they don't understand it, they're not going to see what's actually being said and what's going on because there's so much more beyond the surface than we read into the text. Reading into the Bible is nothing new, and non-Christians and Christians both do it. Galileo himself was put on trial for saying that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. 
Galileo wanted to understand the beauty of God's creation. Do you understand that modern science has its roots in people who loved God and believed that God revealed himself as being knowable? So they said, well, the creation then should be knowable. And that's how it begins to start. Galileo starts to study the heavens and makes all these amazing discoveries. But there were people at that time in the church who called him a heretic. He is placed on house arrest and he refused to recant. Why did they think Galileo was wrong? Well, they didn't understand the Bible in context. Ecclesiastes 1.5 speaks of the sun rising and the sun setting. Well, obviously that means the earth must be solid and, and doesn't move at all and that the sun rises and goes around the earth, right? We still use those terms today though. Sunrise, sunset. Psalm 93 verse 1 speaks of the earth being firmly established and secure. And because they thought it didn't move, they said, well, that must mean what that means. First Chronicles 16.30, Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And rather seeing what God is actually saying here, they said, oh, the earth is solid. No, what it's saying is that God is solid and God is secure and God holds us. He is our foundation. Where he has placed us will never, ever need to be moved. But those in Galileo's time used those verses to prosecute Galileo because they read into the text what they already believed. And atheists and Christians, we still do that today. And this is why we must look at the narratives and who they're written to, and then we can actually get lots of things that are written for us from that narrative. All right, number three. You got thinking caps on, right? You doing okay? Check, whew, write down your questions. We'll get to this. Okay, uh, number three. This is about God's kingdom, God's kingdom. Uh, Genesis, over the seven days of creation, God makes seven speeches. The final one ordains the Sabbath day as holy. It's called the rest day. Let me ask you a question. Does God need to rest? No, no. So what's happening here? Well, the writer of Genesis is deliberately showing God as a king in a royal role. He is reigning by these proclamations. Let there be light and there's light. Bring the land up and the land. Everything has to respond to his words. God is speaking by a royal decree as the only true king. So we go back to this idea. In the beginning, again, that can mean multiple things. It can mean the first of its kind. It can mean when God begins to create. It can mean the choice part, like uh, if you're like meat, the filet mignon, uh, or the top of a muffin, you know, the best part of it. And what it means is, at some point, God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis is a sacred, ancient text that has so much truth in it for us to learn and know who God is and walk with Him. But does it say how old the earth is? No, it doesn't. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's the point. In the beginning, God created. What's the beginning? Ah! And we start to freak out about all these things. I, some people ask me, Aaron, what do you really think? I have an idea. I'm not going to tell you right now because I don't want to make you just run off on tangent or anything. But in the end, I wouldn't be surprised if we're all wrong. <laughs> I really wouldn't because no one knows. Because there, in the beginning, means really at some point. Now, some people say, oh, we have radiometric dating methods. And the Earth is 4.5 to 6 billion years old. And they're really vehement about it. And I'm like, okay. So we were like, no, no, I've read the genealogies in Genesis, which I think also fails to take into account the Hebrew perspective, but the earth is 6.5 to 10,000 years old and they're really vehement about it. I'm like, all right. You know, I, I don't need to argue about it because no one knows. 10,000, 10 billion, we get so sidetracked in all these things and we freak out and you get an aneurysm. Oh, how did that help? It didn't. It didn't help you at all because it doesn't matter. What matters to me? Take a breath, okay? 
It's, it's okay. God made it. That's the point. It doesn't even tell us exactly how he made it except by the power of his words. And I will tell you this. It is the best of all the options that are out there. I have seen the movie The Martian. I am not that into potatoes. I, I like this one. It has all the ingredients for cookies. It's a great planet to be on. After the beginning of the opening verses of Genesis, you get six repeating patterns where God creates things. And it's interesting when you see it because God just named it. It's the land. It's the sky. Uh, he even calls the sun the greater light and the moon the lesser light. Why? Because he didn't want to give them names because everybody worshipped these things. People worship the sky. They worship the land. They worship the sun. They worship the moon. And God's like, it's just that. It's just that. It's just that. He doesn't give names to anything because those things don't give life. I'm the one who gives life. And that's what he's pointing towards when he says all this. Again, it was never meant, I don't think, to be read like a science textbook, although I have had people argue with me about that. And I usually just go, okay, because for me, it's not really worth the argument. I mean, I love talking about these things and going into minute detail on it, but I'm not going to do that here because in the end, really, it matters that God did it. And if I go to the mat and die for something, I will die for the deity of Jesus Christ his atoning sacrifice for my sin and the restoration that the gospel brings. That's what I will die for. Genesis is broken really into two parts. There is the forming and then there is the feeling, feeling, feeling. Like the inside of like a, one of those hostess cakes, right? The feeling. I keep saying like feeling like it feels so good. No, it's feeling. I just can't speak right. Whatever. Okay. But, but feeling, it's called, it's called a functional ontology. What is the function? Why are we created? To be God's image bearers. So fourth thing, if you are just ready, but, but what about, what about, what about? Okay, fourth thing. There are essentially seven different interpretations of Genesis by people who believe the Bible is true and real and hold to it. Now, there are lots of other ones out here of people who don't hold the, the, the scriptures as sacred, but these are the ones of people who do, all right? Seven, here we go. Number one, young earth creationism. Young Earth creationism. That gets the most attention because it's what scientists in our world like to mock the most. A lot of people outside the church think the church, everybody in the church holds this view. That's what everybody in that church believes. And this comes because they take, you know, the genealogies in the book of Genesis and they kind of go back, oh, the earth is 6.5 to 10,000 years old. Each day in creation is one 24-hour period. And I will tell you, there are lots of good conservative Bible teachers who love Jesus and hold this view. Another view is what is called the appearance of age interpretation. And this view holds that the earth is still very young, created in six literal days, but God created it to look older. Not to fool us, but because God creates everything in maturity. Chicken or the egg, right? Baby or adult people, well, adults, chicken. God creates things in their maturity. And so if you have stars that are made, God would stretch the light from those stars, which may take millennia, but he stretches those in an instant to come to us because he creates it in maturity. And we look at it and we say, oh, it must be this because we don't understand it. But that's what they would say. It's still young. It just has the appearance of age. The third view is what is called the gap view. 
And this argues that there is a, oh, and there are lots of people who love Jesus who hold that view. Okay, uh, the next one's called the gap view, and that argues that there's a gap of billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They're believed that they may have been living creatures that evolved during this gap, but when Genesis 1-2 starts, God begins a recreation that happens in six 24-hour periods. And so there's billions of years in the gap that could account for ice ages and dinosaurs and geological formations, and there are people who love Jesus who hold that view. And then there is what is called the promised land view or the preparation for the garden. And this is kind of a modified gap view of sorts. And it says that God directed creation, which could have been for billions of years. And then starting in Genesis 1-2, God worked directly with the garden, with Eden, where he would put mankind. And so when you read the creation account in Genesis 1, it's not referring to the whole earth. It's referring specifically to Genesis or just to, to the garden. And there's lots of people who love Jesus who hold that view. Uh, and then there's what is called the day-age view. And this is a view that holds that each day in the Genesis narrative is not a 24-hour period, but a long period of time, like could be a billion years. The Hebrew uh, word for day, yom, when it's used in correct context, can mean more than a 24-hour period. And there are people who love Jesus who hold that view. And then there's a view that's called God's temple view. And this view believes that the days of creation represent the heavens, God's throne, and the earth is God's footstool. And Genesis is about preparing his temple, that God's going to take up residence in that temple by showing how he rests on the seventh day. And this may sound weird to us, but it might have actually made sense to the Israelites. Because in the ancient world, kings would build themselves temples. And what they would do is over a course of six days, they would have these inaugurations. And on the seventh day, they would go and take up residence. And if you want to look, they will point to things like Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Uh, Exodus 39 and 40 as places that you can say, oh, this is what it's referring to. And there are people who love Jesus who hold to that view. And then there's the evolutionary creationist view. And we hear evolution, we think life taking place without God being involved. But scientifically, I will tell you, that's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. Evolutionary creationists believe that creation happened by evolution, but God is directing each and every step of it the entire way. They believe Genesis is 100% inspired by God. It is authoritative to the Christian life and understanding, but that God used evolution as an act of creating. One of the things that they say is this, if young earth creationists can believe that God created, or God created man from dirt, why not primordial soup? I think they're being funny, but whatever. Okay, those are all very simplified. And there have been books and 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 books. And books written about every single one of those. But I will tell you, no matter what you believe in terms of Genesis and creation, we want to be a reasoned people who understand why we believe what we believe. And I personally think that you could adhere to any of those views and still be saved because it's about what Christ does for us in rescuing and saving us. Because that's the question. What do we believe about God's provision for us in the person of Jesus Christ? In Genesis, Moses is talking about God like every book of the Bible. It is all about God, and we have to stop trying to make it about us. When Moses writes what he writes, it's not meant to be exhaustive. It's not. And every time it doesn't answer a question we want, we just get sidetracked more and more rather than seeing what God is actually trying to say. It doesn't tell us all there is to know, but simply what we need to know. Genesis is not a book about dinosaurs and monkeys. It's a book about God and how we rebelled against him. And so God, through Moses, gives us what we need to know to understand what he has done. Now, when you get to the New Testament, 
It's interesting because in Romans 1, 19 and 20, Paul reminds us that God revealed himself in such a way in the creation that man is without excuse for not believing in him. And if we were without excuse, it would make sense that God reveals himself in a way that we could actually know him. In Genesis 1, the crowning thing of God's creation is mankind, that God calls us to himself. We are his image bearers, but what do we do? We run away from him. And what does God do in the Exodus narrative? He brings his people back. He wants to redeem and restore them and calls them to be his image bearers to the world. And they keep messing that up. And so eventually, Jesus comes to take away our sin, to bring us back into relationship with God again so we can truly begin to live as God's image bearers. And when we live redeemed lives today, we will show, first and foremost, that when we love, we show that God has first loved us. And God is a loving God. And when we forgive others, we show that God first forgave us, and God is a forgiving God. And when we serve others, we show that God first came and served us by saving us. He is a serving God, and we respond that way. We were made to reflect God's goodness into this creation that He has made. I mean, when God eventually calls the nation of Israel to be His priests, He tells them, again, don't make any image of me, because you were meant to be the image. And I mean, we can make little images and they're going to be very poor representations. We ourselves are very poor representations. But God steps into all the places where we have failed and calls us back to Himself. People were to know who God is by the difference and change He is making in the lives of those who love and trust Him. How do we return to be God's image bearers in the world? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we return to be God's image bearers in the world. The original intent of that creation is what we now get to experience when we trust in Christ's sacrifice for us. The whole Genesis narrative keeps coming back and reminding us of who God is and how we run. Oh, well, here's this guy. Look at Noah. Well, Noah passed out drunk and naked in a tent after he was on that ark. Okay, well, look at Abraham. Oh, Abraham tried to pimp out his wife a bunch of times. Okay, let's let's look at Isaac. Isaac was a terrible dad. Oh, let's look at... Just on and on and on. And it shows that every single time that we want to focus on ourselves and get all things that we think we need, we mess it up every time. And yet it shows a God who is faithful, who keeps coming in and reminding us of his relational promises to us as a people. And so we get to be a people who get to be redeemed and restored, not because of what we did, not because of our knowledge or our understanding of how all the heavens work, but because we come to a place of understanding what Christ did to save us and draw us to himself. And this is why every week we come to this place of communion because it's a reminder of what Jesus did to save us. This is why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed for us. From the beginning of creation, when we first got here, we run from God, and God has been drawing us to himself ever since, taking away everything that stands between us and him. And he does this in Christ's death and resurrection. And so when we take communion, that's what we remember. And if you would like, there's a gluten-free option in the back. There's also single-serve ones in the back if you want one of those as well. But we come to this place of communion reminding ourselves that it is about God's redemption of us as a people. And this is why we worship. And when we look at all the creation, we become astounded by how great and good and majestic God is. And yet, we can still come to the place of humbleness and trusting Him because He has come and sought and revealed Himself to us. And guys, if you need prayer this morning, maybe you're in a place where you have all these questions about all these things, and oh, I can't believe in God because the Bible says six days. Well, there's different views on that, okay? 
And if you want someone to pray with you and talk with you about some of those things, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. We will connect you with somebody to pray and talk with you. If you have a question, write it down because we want to be a people who are intellectually honest about the things that we struggle with. We want to be able to talk through them in ways that draws closer to who Christ is. Uh, If you would like to give, there's offering boxes on every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always a response, just like loving and forgiving and serving. We give because God first gave to us. So you have that opportunity every week. And I encourage you to grab the sermon notes, maybe talk to some friends or family, your gospel community, and kind of walk through those questions. Like, what are the hard questions about you when you look around creation? You know, what are the places where you maybe stumbled about, I don't know about this or that, and then be honest about those. And then start to maybe walk through some of those questions to a place where you can trust God more for how he has actually revealed himself. Because God is good. God is good. God is never afraid of our questions. God, what he doesn't want from us is our silence. And so we need to be a people who talk to him about all of those things. So let's be a people who trust him, and love him and walk with him because we understand that he has first loved us. Let's pray. Part of this morning, we ask that you would take and move us to be a people who even in the midst of our questions, we come to a place where we trust you. Where we may not have the answers to every single minute one of our questions, but we know ultimately in the end that you are the answer and that we can trust you. And that trust that we have in you would then be lived out by the confidence of our lives in faith, in trust. God, I thank you that we can be a a people who have some fun arguments about a whole lot of things, and maybe some of them don't really matter that much. But in the end, I ask that you would move us to a place where we understand what is important. That there is a place in time where we ran from you. And there is a definitive place in time in the person of Jesus Christ who has come and rescued us from that rebellion. Even the rebellion that we still run towards today. And so I ask that you would undo maybe a lot of things that that we have put as roadblocks between us and truly trusting you. And you would teach us to walk with you in faith, trusting that you are good. And that understanding and trusting that you are good would then lead us to be a people who live out in this world as your image bearers that we would live as your hands and feet, that we would be your priests who would point to you and the goodness and the grace of who you are. Teach us to be those who love and trust you and live in such ways that you are glorified. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So drop the curtains. And as we do, just take a couple moments and deal honestly maybe with some of the questions that you have had maybe that haven't been answered or maybe the questions you want answered, but maybe think of some of the ways in your life that you have started to get sidetracked by certain things that in the end don't really matter. Things that pull you away from understanding what the gospel is first. And ask God to show you what those are and then show you what the truth of the gospel actually is and that you would trust in that and then step into all those other things that we would trust in what God has done 
first and foremost for us. Then come take communion, sing a couple songs, get a dodgeball thrown at you, and it'll all be great.